Oh, God. <clears throat> Welcome to Barstool Politics. Yeah, hi. <laughs> I'm going to sound like this the whole time, so I think we're going to have Bill do the introductions. Nick is uh, <clears throat> Nick is now with a cold. He's fighting through, though. Yes. I smell like Frankie Five Angels. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so it is, of course, uh, uh, Nick and Bill and Phil, and uh, we are joined by a special guest, and I'm going to pass it over to Phil to make the introductions. Yeah, so one of, one of my best friends... Um, Used to work with him when I worked in in Texas, and uh, uh, yeah, he's 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 one of those people that just just graded everything. And if you didn't like him, if you knew him, when you know him, you love him. If you didn't love him, you'd almost hate him. He's so good at everything. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Justin, he's Justin Clausen, who's a professor of theology at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so he's he, we're we're glad to have him here. And and the one strike against him. Is that he's a Canadian, so oh. <laughs> that'll be good. Though. We'll we'll have a uh, we'll have a good discussion. He'll bring in a different perspective. So yeah, I'll, we're glad to have you here, Justin. Well, true to form, let me just apologize for that. <laughs> Sorry. I, I love yeah, it. No, it's good to be here. I, I lo- and uh, yeah, it's good to good to be here talking with you about about politics. I love the Kentucky Canadian combination, right? It's just like it's the two worlds coming together. So. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's it's actually it was more of a culture shock I think to move to Texas um, than it was to in Kentucky. Kentucky out, outside of Louisville is even different uh, from from what it is in the city. But yeah. Louisville's like a little slice of Canada in the middle of Kentucky, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, you know what? When I when we first moved to Louisville from Texas, I remember you know one of my first impressions was that this feels a bit like Toronto to me. Uh, I mean, I'm from the West Coast, but I did live. Uh, near Toronto for uh, seven years while I was in grad school. And yeah, it felt more like a northern city than than anything that I experienced in Texas, but yeah. Yeah, very cool. Uh, I, I mean, we kind of talked about this uh, before we, we started recording. I, I mean, I'm assuming that you've been following politics, and especially U.S. politics, significantly more closely than most people have recently, correct? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, um, we actually got our we got our green cards uh, right before I think the week before Trump was elected. Yeah, yeah. so so uh, that was like good, and then and then kind of weird, um, disappointing, <laughs> I guess. Uh, you know, and it was something that it took years to get, and and uh, it was a lot of money and lawyers, and um, you know, long process and. And then we we got it, and then he got elected, and then you know the first executive order after the inauguration was green card holders, mm-hmm. and um, and two of our we have three kids and two girls and a boy, and the and the the green cards that the girls got um, they actually indicated their sex as male. It was like a typo in the system, mm-hmm. and so you know it takes all this time to get these cards made and stuff, and they were wrong, and so. Uh, we, we let the lawyer know and, and they're like, oh, okay, you know, we'll, we'll have to reprocess. And then they had to have new appointments at U.S. Customs and Immigration Services uh, downtown, like at Mitch McConnell's building or whatever. Oh and God, yeah. we had to go back down there for their biometrics to be done again. Was it different the uh, second time you went through it? Like, did they no, treat you differently or anything? it wasn't necessarily different. There were more people in there hoping to get in or get through or whatever the process. Um I mean, we don't know yet. We haven't had the replacement cards issued. Uh, they let us keep the old cards that are 
that indicate their sex incorrectly. So at least at least we have those. Um, How nice of that. I, I, I would tell you just to go with the whole transgender thing. Right, exactly. Like, Trump's shooting that down, too. Right. So you're feeling like, exactly. like a guy. Yeah. We don't want to be too disruptive. Yeah. Just, you know. yeah. So so we're going to talk... So what's our plan here? Are we going to we're going to talk uh, I think we're going to talk Russia, right? I think we and should start with back. Russia. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and so part of the reason we have Justin on here is I mean there's so much going on with immigration. Can you can you hear my beer? Phil's <laughs> pouring his beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we're going to talk we're going to come back around and talk uh, immigration quite a bit. because um, there's a lot going on and I think Justin will bring a, a good perspective. Speaking of perspectives, we should mention or we should comment on the fact that today is the international day international women's day and the day white men on the Bible, <laughs> yes. right? we're we solving really probably should have planned a little better for that but uh <laughs> oh. so bill you want to let's should we jump right into russia and then we'll 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 uh come back around to let's let's do that and and maybe start with the wiretapping and and given that justin is from canada and has a green card we can only assume that donald trump is already uh you know wiretapping his phones so. hey, no, not. you know he excluded <laughs> yes. white men he's fine yeah so so this okay, one of the for me i think for many of us the story of the week was donald trump coming out early saturday morning I uh, woke up early, 6.30, started tweeting, and uh, had this revelation uh, that uh, that uh, former president, Barack Obama, had wiretapped his, his phone at Trump Tower. He was very upset about this and uh, said Obama was uh, bad and sick, uh, and, and apparently did this without any evidence. So and what we're learning is that uh, on Sunday, the uh, FBI director, James Comey, uh, discreetly got in touch with the uh, Justice Department and said, uh, "Could you please tell him to take this back? Right, this is this is not accurate." Uh, the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, also came out and said, "There's no evidence to this." And so this this bomb just dropped. And I, I think ever since it's it's hard to of all the Trump stories, this is the hardest one for me to wrap my head around. So it, it's a go, yeah, ahead. go ahead, Nick. No, go ahead. I, this is a big thing, right? I mean, like he's accusing a former president of of do of engaging in highly illegal activities, yeah, right? So, I mean, this is bad. a, and, yeah. and has refused to, when they've been pushed on this, people have asked him about about providing evidence yes. and the Trump administration's response is like, nope, we're, yeah. not, we're, not, we're not providing any evidence. In fact, that's why the FBI, or not the FBI, that's why Congress should look into it, which is an, an insane, yes. an insane statement. So uh, just unpacking it, from what we know, the only evidence that he's going on seems to be a story that was published in Breitbart, right, mm -hmm. a few years ago, and a previous story that Breitbart quoted, correct, yes. that well, came from the Daily Mail so, or something? Well, even, I think the the more immediate one is apparently uh, the, this uh, talk show, right-wing right talk show. Levine, Mark, Mark Levin. Levin. Yeah. Mark Le Levin or Levine or whatever, yeah. And I think that was late last week that right. he was accusing, and then Bright did a story maybe late Friday, early Saturday, and that's what set him off. Um, yeah, it, it's bizarre because we have to have this conversation about whether this really could have happened, and if so, what are the legal ramifications? But the reality is that more than likely than not, he just got this from Breitbart. Right. Yeah. Which is insane. Well, yeah. the other thing that I was wondering about, like Phil was saying this, you know, as an accusation, it seems bizarre because uh, it would be this highly illegal act. But then again, like if it had happened, wouldn't like the the ultimate story be that 
somebody found sufficient evidence to get a warrant <laughs> yes. to wiretap, right. like to have probable cause. So, yeah, I, I, like he's asking for an investigation of himself. Is this, how I understand. These are yeah, self-incriminating tweets, right? Right, yes. right, right. Yeah, there, yeah. There, so there, Lindsey Graham actually. I, I saw a little clip where he was talking about this, but I mean, the, one of two. I mean, this is a huge story because either Trump is accurate and Obama has illegally tapped his phones and then for whatever reason like even though he thought Trump was going to lose he tapped his phones and said nothing about it but anyway even either he did that illegally or if Trump's phones were being tapped um if Obama went through the process then that means he got a FISA warrant right yeah. which means that a court a judge has actually looked at the evidence and said there's enough evidence to believe that there might be inappropriate or problematic connections between Trump and Russia, which is which would be massive as well. So that's where Lindsey Graham was basically saying, either way, like this is we should look into this, right? Because if yeah. if he's right and Obama did this without a warrant, that's huge. And if he if if the Obama administration, and, and we should say that if the Obama Justice Department yeah. did this with a warrant, that's also huge, <laughs> right? Like this is this right. that's major. Well, and the other thing is in, the other thing. go ahead, Justin. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, that's the other thing, too. Is it weird? Like, I mean, I can't really imagine that um, a president as a person ever says, go tap so-and-so's phone, right? This is a ju this would have been an Obama-era Justice Department action if yeah. it ever yeah. occurred. Yeah. It wasn't if it like Barack Obama called it in. No, no that would no. be awesome, though. <laughs> Him scaling the building in, like, a black suit yes. with a mask on with a little glass cutter thing. <laughs> The president does not have the power to to target individuals. He doesn't have in the power to climb phone. that building. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is why if if that did occur, it's a big thing, right? Because he shouldn't right. have the power to do that. But it's also why it almost certainly didn't happen. Right. Right. Well, and the other thing <laughs> is, in the tweets himself, he mentions he calls it McCarthyism, mm. and then says it's Watergate. These are terms that he should not be bringing up. He doesn't want people <laughs> thinking about Watergate yeah. when this whole Russian thing is playing. It caught everybody in his administration off guard. I mean, you think about it. If you're if you're Spicer, Sean Spicy, getting up and you know you're looking at the mail in the morning or your email, and suddenly you see that he's already been tweeting this. Like, what you're the fuck, right? dude. Damage control, damage control. Uh, yeah, it. So he's done that. I mean, he did this for while he was in Florida, right? I mean, yeah. It was a, yeah. It's the so weekend, I, Phil. Yeah, it's interesting to see the ways in which, like, when he's at the White House, it, it appears that they have a little more control over what he has access to or what he can tweet. And when he's in Florida, he's kind of on his own. And the amazing thing is that several people have pointed this out. He, he basically alleged a Watergate level scandal, maybe even worse than Watergate. Yeah. Oh. And then like 15 minutes later was tweeting about Arnold Schwarzenegger's poor <laughs> uh, <laughs> So he doesn't drink, right? No, Around he's, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't drink at all? No, he's, no. Yeah, he's sober. Yeah. Really? Yeah, his his brother was an alcoholic, uh, and and I believe died, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, and uh, he has you know he's he's totally sober. Yeah, still still crazy, but sober. Yeah, <laughs> so, maybe we'll calm him down if he had one. <laughs> yes. Now, what I keep wondering is, it's clear those in the administration know this is false. So when Sean Spicer has to go out, when uh, all these other individuals go out and have to defend him, you know that they're they don't want to answer this. But do you think he believes this, or is this really thinks Obama is wiretapping him? Well, my—I mean, long pause. Yeah. I think that he is all about um, 
he's all about rhetoric and and power and and control. And so I don't think that to him, he doesn't necessarily he reads this and doesn't think about whether or not it's true. That this is the yeah. way I perceive it. Any he doesn't think about whether or not people that support me would get fired up about it, as I am because I'm insulted, you know, by the by this very possibility, yeah. right? Yeah. Not it doesn't matter if it happened or not. I mean, that's why the McCart like you're saying, you know, he shouldn't have brought up these terms McCarthyism and and uh, and Watergate. I honestly don't think he even really knows what those terms refer to. Like he doesn't see, yeah. he's not using this as a historian. He's just, he's just <laughs> giving you and you know, Obama, Obama Watergate. You know, you believe <laughs> yes. it, right? But like, okay. even, even that's giving him a fair amount of credit in this, in the sense that like sure. he knows that like, uh, that this is uh, powerful and will appeal to his, ba I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, there's, there's an interesting question about whether, he gets that and is being strategic or how much of it is just like, you know, like he hears something and is like, I'm going to tweet about it. Right. Like <laughs> he's just an old man who's grumpy on the couch and he sees something on TV and tweets it. Right. I want to think that it's, it's not the latter of the two. I, 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 the, it's so ridiculous. Like he's the president of the fucking United <laughs> yes. States. I, I, I honestly do think he, He's he's a showman, and like Justin said, he uses rhetoric to the umpteenth degree about Russia, which has been all over the place, obviously for months. But this week in particular, do you should we talk about sessions and all this other stuff? I think we should. But before we do that, can I just say one thing about my new favorite player in the Trump administration, who is this Sarah? <laughs> she since he knows Trump is lying, and yeah. I just have to play this game. I really think she believes him, and she was out this week. Oh, yeah. And saying, you know, somebody said, how can this be true? Everybody else is denying it. The FBI, the you know, director of national truth to power, right? And you're going, like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> what if he's yeah, he's right. You're drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that, that is Mike Huckabee's daughter. I didn't realize that until yeah. early. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, there's been this, there's, <laughs> she's not been as, uh, she has a little bit. There's been this tendency amongst Trump spokespeople to to res, resort to this line of the president blank, the president's yeah. statement or the president's tweet or whatever speaks for itself, which is like it's <laughs> like classic go to line, which is like, I'm going to avoid actually having to talk about this or even like distancing themselves from the statement, which is a bizarre thing for a spokesperson to say, right? Yeah. Like they're supposed to be there essentially explaining the president's views or the president's statements on things and their response has sort of become this eh, it speaks for itself <laughs> i'm not going to address it and if uh -huh. if and so what the administration has done is they've called on congress congress should investigate this congress doesn't have the same information that the president does right, right. so if if this is right. true and this were something other than a breitbart article Trump would know that. He is the authority. He can declare this is what happened. Congress doesn't have to look into it. It's absurd. Did, did you see Spicer's, I think it was Spicer, somebody asked that question, essentially, which is the president, if he has intelligence that we don't have, right, if he has access to this, he also has the power to declassify, right? He could re release right. this immediately and put this to rest. And the question has, somebody put to him was, why doesn't he do that? I, mean, I don't remember if it was Spicer or it was. It was, it was yeah. Okay. And his response was essentially, it's a separation of powers issue. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, did you guys find it interesting that, that WikiLeaks dump 
came pretty much on the heels of this happening. No! No? No. You don't no. find that weird at all? He, he, I'm sure uh, Donnie called up Russia and said, hey, g- give me something. <laughs> give me something. <laughs> I, I'm in a mess here. <laughs> How does... <laughs> Almost <laughs> undetectable assassination sound. You want that? Yeah, I know. I mean, they're, that out there. Rush, they're all yeah. WikiLeaks is in our televisions now, right? I mean, that's yeah, that's terrifying. It is, that is interesting that in the in the so he alleges that the, essentially the U.S. government has ha- has hacked or tapped his phones, right? Has has listened in on him, and then two three days later, something like that, mm-hmm. WikiLeaks releases this big file of all of this. CIA essentially um, all of their hacking techniques and hacking programs and or whatever. Yeah, it's not not, coinc- <laughs> right, not coincidental at all. Right? <laughs> um, maybe well, I mean I just, it's coincidental. I just think like what a what an incredible display of how um, how fiercely, but not necessarily intelligently, this administration will be about battling for control of the narrative. And so like last. Because last uh, week, I was just listening to your guys' episode uh, from last week, and, you know, it was all about the speech, <laughs> yeah. the, the non-State of the Union, right? And and uh, this tone and the media response, and would that be more dangerous? And you guys had all these great, uh, fascinating sort of considerations about what will this mean for the future of, of the administration, the president's agenda, and whatever. And then the next day, it's like... <laughs> The attorney general, uh, you know, is recusing himself and, and everything's gone crazy. And so they just come back guns ablazing with, I mean, you know, God forbid there's a real like event that they have to respond to. Oh, um, yes. It's just such such a mess. So chaotic. The, the chronology of all of this is important, right? Because because we did. We finished our podcast last Wednesday night talking about the speech. Everyone else was talking about the speech. I went home, and by the time I got home, the Jeff Sessions story had broke. Right, so yeah. that was Wednesday night. The Sessions story that he had that he had actually met with the Russian ambassador multiple times, that he had lied under oath allegedly, um, and yeah, so that explodes. He recuses himself within like it all starts unraveling really quickly. So they had this very positive news cycle that went south quick, and yeah, I mean that certainly fits into this. Then when when did he make the allegations about the wiretapping? It was this weekend, right? It was like Saturday, Saturday, Saturday morning. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's certainly whether it's him being strategic about trying to take the news cycle back or whether it's him being essentially overly sensitive to a bad news cycle yeah. and sort of lashing yeah. out either way, like the timing of this all. You know, it, it it makes sense, right? You have to you have to understand all of this happening within the the context of what's going on. Let's right. let's talk a bit about. So it starts with session. So you're right. So yeah, after we we taped podcast, then the session story breaks, and then the other news that uh, so all of the the Russian context kind of trickled out this week. So we knew that Michael Flynn had met with the Russian ambassador Kislyak. So we learned about sessions. Then the story about Donald Trump Jr. going to Paris. And, and giving a uh, basically a speech for $50,000 to this pro-Russian think tank there. We also learned that J.D. Gordon, the former national security advisor during the campaign, uh, had met with Kislyak. Carter Page had also met with the Russians. Jared Kushner, it's like all of this keeps coming out. Right. Kushner uh, came out, yeah. Yeah, in this week. So you have basically, as I counted, six individuals within the Trump campaign had met with Russian operatives, Kislyak or others, uh, and none of them had acknowledged it. All had denied. And then this week had to come back and say, oh, yeah. And then Carter Page's defense was the best. 
He said, I had a meeting, but it was a meeting in the Russian sense of the term, which is basically you just kind of say hi to somebody. That's that's a meeting. You know, it's uh, no, no real business. Uh, well, and there, there was more to it. It was it was all of those meetings. Was it yesterday? At some point this week, the, the story came out that Trump himself had met with a Russian ambassador, right. which, again, is not like in and of itself is not a big not a big deal right no. like a, he's he's potentially the president of the united states it makes sense for him to meet with these but apparently he had been asked about it and said he hadn't met with the russians and then of course it all fits into this bigger pattern of like kislyak being apparently the most forgettable man in the world yes. <laughs> because all of these trump people have met with him and then at some point under oath or in an in a interview have Claimed that they have never met him, and so have you seen him? Um, he just looks like an amorphous blob. I forget him too. <laughs> yeah, and and also this fits in with the story. So Wednesday night, the session story broke, but also the story that um, that several foreign intelligence agencies, foreign governments, were reporting that Trump people had met with Russian officials in Europe. Yeah. Uh, there were also stories that broke. So it was like the Washington Times, the New York Times, and somebody else, all three broke stories Wednesday night. Another one was that Obama, the Obama administration had been essentially taking this intelligence that they had and sort of writing up reports and distributing them to all sorts of agencies <laughs> in an attempt to make sure that lots of people were aware of the connections between Trump and Russians right. yeah. in, this, in the hopes that if Trump comes into power and tried to squash it. And that brings up sort of interesting kind of ethical questions, I, yeah. I suppose. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's it's been a it's been a big week for Trump Russia stuff or a bad week, depending on your perspective. Yeah. As you said, Phil, you know, the, there is no, there still is no evidence that there is any connection in terms of a nefarious connection between the Trump campaign and the Russians. Mm -hmm. But what I want is I want the innocent explanation. Right. Tell me right. why all these meetings took place. Mm -hmm. And, and right. maybe it's just that, hey, we wanted to establish rapport, whatever it was. But don't deny that they all occurred and then we find out about them and say, oh, I just, I forgot, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. right. don't lie about you meant them. You that, Kislyak. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the guy at... And, oh, and, Sergey. And the, the, session, <laughs> the Sessions one is particularly troubling because the second meeting with him, Sessions and Kislyak, was in Sessions' office in September when all the stories about Russia hacking the DNC are breaking, right? Mm. So this would be something that would stick in your memory that, oh yeah, I met with him when I learned that the Russians were attacking the U.S. electoral system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. So, and, so go ahead, I wonder Justin. about, I, I'm just curious about uh, perjury. Um, yeah, like, it's, it's a real thing. Not, we're all curious about life? that. Right? Is that still a thing? No. Uh, you know, like the you watch these TV shows, right? And and the the oath swearing is this solemn thing, and and you know who's gonna be willing to lie under oath, and you could perjure yourself, and that means like penalties and con it's a criminal thing. Yeah, and, not at and, this level. It but like Sessions is not at this level yet. No. Sessions is just like. You, you know, his explanation was basically that he's, like, a little bit intimidated by Al Franken or something. That's okay now. Who, who uh, is Al Franken? He's yeah, a scary he's such SMB. a great comedian. <laughs> so. No, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, I, you, you would, again, I mean, yeah, if, 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 if Bill, if you had given testimony to Congress <laughs> and lied that outright, you'd be in deep shit, right? right. Uh, I'd be in jail, and I wouldn't do well in jail, Barker, that's for sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
Well, and yeah, the other it, thing is, uh, you know, so when Sesh, Sessions goes way back in, in U.S. political history, I mean, he was there when Clinton was lying, right? So the whole, it, you know, Bill Clinton's it depends on what is, is. He attacked him for that, and he said, this is blatant perjury, and and you have to call him on that. And then now Sessions is coming back saying, well, I didn't know you were asking me about my role as campaign. You know, I forgot all the, I, it's it, It's really a thin explanation. That's why it's awkward. If he had been a guy who all along had been like, you know, there's like, we're going to be sympathetic and there's nuance and we're not going to be hold this like super rigid line. But yeah, he has a long history yeah. of essentially accusing people of perjury, right? And yeah. so it, it's, it's an unfortunate uh, combination for him. But and he was pretty direct. Who Somebody... Somebody basically, I'm trying to remember, somebody in Congress basically accused Franken of asking a gotcha question, right? Yeah. That this was a gotcha question, um, which I, seemed sort of insane to me because the question was essentially, have yeah. have you or anyone you know, like basically, are you aware of contacts between Russian officials? And that doesn't seem particularly gotcha. Hold on, Bill's getting the transcript. <laughs> yeah, I got the transcript here. So. Uh... So <laughs> I always got the data. <laughs> and so so in response to the question, I'm trying to think if I have the uh, by Al Franken, Session says, I have I have been called a surrogate. I'm using my Sessions voice. I have been called a surrogate a time or two in the campaign. I did not have communications with the Russians. I mean that's yeah. that's pretty clear. That's pretty straightforward. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we're all under the assumption that there will be no consequences. No, of course for this. not. Yeah, of course. I mean, the... He's the attorney general, right. Nick. <laughs> it's never, ever going to happen. So, realistically, to answer your question, no, perjury does not exist at this level of right. governance in the United States. Yeah. That's pretty sad. <laughs> you know, and I, I actually. Unless you screwed to... an intern, I guess. Yes. I want to talk about the gotcha question idea, too. Um, I hate that term. Uh, I don't understand how, like, to me, a gotcha question, what politicians now mean by that is a question that requires a direct answer and uh, <laughs> before which one cannot obfuscate well or right, easily. Right, so, right. like, that's a question. Yes. That's just a question. <laughs> you know? Um, I, think, I think journalism should be all gotcha question training. Like, yeah. that's, like... Just forget. There should be no other kind of question. Yeah. (laughs) Not like the one question where they can't be bullshitters uh, is somehow like not allowed. Like that's crazy. Yeah. Like if anything, with the Trump administration, the the critique you can make of the the media is that they tend to ask these like multi-part, like six-pronged question, and and it totally allows every like out possible. Yeah, so, right. yeah, it's kind of nice to have them ask direct questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it reminds me, actually, of the pre- of the infamous press conference that Trump uh, held where anti-Semitism and stuff. That was and, a gotcha question. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a direct <laughs> – exactly. It was a perfect question. And, and, you know, and then he just basically said, no, he asked me a tough question, right? And he said he wasn't going to ask me a tough question. That, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> wasn't just tough. I no. Think was, I think he claimed it wasn't a fair question, right? Didn't he say he was going to ask yeah. a fair question? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. If you guys want to see, I mean, I don't, you've probably seen this, but one of the a great moment of journalism was this was Carter Page, the, the foreign policy foreign policy advisor during the Trump campaign, goes on Anderson Cooper, and basically admits that he had met with Sergey, and it's so awkward because Anderson Cooper just shreds him, 
And, and Carter Page tries to put a good face on it by smiling throughout the entire thing. But it's clear he has lied. He's now been called on his lie. And he yeah. just continues to smile. And afterwards, you're like, your career is over now. So what's the, like... What's the benign explanation for all of this, right? Like, so, like, if you wanted to defend the Trump administration and basically say this looks bad, but it wasn't that big of a deal, like, what what's the what's the argument for that? What I would say, so I, I I've been thinking a lot about this. My guess is the Trump administration they thought they were going to lose, mm-hmm. and so the Russians are probably saying let's have these meetings let's talk and if you're the trump campaign why not let's mix it up it's that forbidden fruit let's talk to the russians let's almost knock my beer over i'm so excited (laughs) you know and so let's have these conversations nothing's going to come of this we're probably going to lose and then we can just burn the rest of it down uh it was exciting never thinking they were going to win and have to answer for all these conversations that they were having Mm -hmm. even if they're not pernicious even if the conversations themselves weren't about WikiLeaks or anything like that it, it's still you know it was it was a fun experiment yeah. I personally think they've been working on the cure for cancer uh, and they've yet to release that data and everybody's just giving them a hard time because you know it's not giving them a, it's not giving them a chance yeah. it's oh a good, god I'm drugged up I, had, I hadn't thought of that Nick I'm glad you're here to throw that out yep. that's what I'm here for oh. yeah no I, I tend to think that like you have to interpret much of the Trump campaign through maybe through a built in to think that most of the connections between Trump and Russia are really kind of business connections. Yeah. Right. I don't I don't think that there's this um, this deep, dark, like collaboration between Putin and Trump to you know overthrow the Western. Like, I don't think Trump is a, a Russian agent in that, in the sort of sense that people might like to think he is. But there were probably meetings along those lines. And again, like you were saying, Bill, if you don't think you're actually going to win necessarily, right. then you're not worried about having to explain these things, right? You don't have to, to worry about the PR thing. You're just trying to worry about what's best for Trump enterprises. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. God, I'd love the trigger word yeah, for that. that, that <clears throat> so, so I know we need, we're going to talk, we're going to shift to immigration, but I, I can't end. Um, Please, this is this is also one of my favorite Russian connection stories. So this is this is a guy Dmitry uh, Reblyovlov, uh, who is nailed it. I, 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 I practiced. I practiced that, Bill. So he is. He literally is is like a Russian oligarch who is uh, in the fertilizer business and is known as the Russian fertilizer king. So this gentleman uh, bought Donald Trump's uh, a home of Donald Trump's in Palm Springs. So this is a, a home that Trump had bought for forty million, put it on the market for one hundred twenty-five million, and the Fertilizer King bought it for a hundred million. It was the most expensive home ever purchased in the United States. This occurred in two thousand eight, and many, many people say that it was so much more. It was surprising that it was you know he paid so much more for it. But whatever, maybe he's a bad businessman. He's good at fertilizer. Bad at home purchases. But for me, the interesting line of argument here is that there's been a number of stories breaking to say that his plane has been showing up in the same location at, as Donald Trump throughout the campaign. So in Charlotte, in Concord, North Carolina, in Las Vegas, in New York, in Burbank, and Miami, the, his like big Russian jet would show up the same place that... Trump's jet showed up. And and the one that grabs me is Concord, North Carolina, because this is a relatively small town, and Trump was doing a campaign event there, and this other plane is landing there, 
uh, for no other reason. So the question is, you know, why why is this happening? And, and again, there may be a totally innocent explanation, but yet why is a Russian oligarch continuing to travel in the same place as Donald Trump is? Well, now you're just peddling in conspiracy theories. I know! <laughs> I know! And the Trump administration came out this week and said, this is conspiracy theory stuff, which makes me think it's therefore true. <laughs> Uh, and I, I don't want to go down the conspiracy theory road, but like this is that's it's where we're at. It's getting hard to distinguish. Yes, from yes. I mean, Rachel Maddow uh, went there on the Fertilizer King quite a bit uh, yeah. a few days ago, and um, she had some theory. I forget what it was now, but of of why Trump might have needed that influx of cash at that moment when he sold that uh, residence for such a, an inflated price and. But then also they denied that they knew each other or yes. had met ever. Yes. Like so, you somehow negotiated the the highest uh, home sale you know price in America ever, and you have no contact with the buyer. I don't know. That just seems absurd, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. and I think in two thousand eight, Phil, you're better at this. Isn't this when Trump was in financial trouble? Right. There was a period where he was in a lot of yeah, lots of this sort of allegations of ties between Trump. And Russia come in essentially in that Russian oligarchs essentially use Trump's businesses as a the times when Trump's business was doing poorly, but which which is not which is not insignificant, right? I, I don't I don't have any I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't have any evidence for that. <laughs> well, I mean, I've just seen people allege that, but but that I mean, I, I that's I think that's a point to make because it's it's less than the sort of traitorous contact that I think some people think is happening, right? But it's also, it, it's more than nothing, right? right. Like, yeah. it explains the ties between Trump and Russia. Like, there's these, it's a Russian agent kind of way, but in, in a, you know, he's a businessman who has ties to Russia. I don't see many of these points to you guys without a fight, but $40 million house to a $100 million house yeah. with no real explanation. He, he, he paints, yeah, he paints. That's it. fucked up. He painted, he painted. He painted? Yes. Okay. <laughs> No, something is clearly, like, that doesn't happen, especially yeah. in, in the U.S. over the past decade. Like, that doesn't happen, ever. He probably on, Benjamin who among us? Who among us hasn't sold a $40 million house? <laughs> million dollars? Come on. Uh, and I, 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 when I... I also feel a little guilty because I was, you know, I hated when these conspiracy theories attacked Obama because so many of them felt like just absolute silliness. And on some level, this feels like Trump give me an innocent explanation for all of this. So here's and we the go thing. away. If they realistically, if he gave, and it sounds like realistically, if they, if Trump and his administration, or at the time his campaign staff, would have just given explanations for yeah. this stuff, yeah. would that have been acceptable? to the American people and especially the media more than anything. Meetings, this is what we discussed. It becomes a, a non-story, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, you, you can meet with other countries. Do you think he just I, doesn't know enough to where he doesn't, like, he really doesn't know what's okay and what's not at this point? I, I, I think the, like, even to, for him to come out and say, I'm a businessman, right? Like, right. He, he, has, he has, like, denied Russian connections to the extent that it, it's kind of, like, really sort of more than he needs to, right? Like, if he had talked about, like, <laughs> I'm a business person and I do business in Russia and, like, I have investments from Russian business people, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't, 
that seems like that would have been an easy way to sort. It would have been like a pressure release valve that would have not appeased everyone, but would have kind of taken some of the pressure off, right? Like this is this is what I do. I'm not a traditional politician. I do business around the world, and I do uh, real estate development. And yeah, I have connections to Russia, but that doesn't mean that I'm corrupt, right? It seems like that would have gone a long way to. I, I don't understand why he didn't do that. He's just stuck in the line now. He's yes. got to keep it up. I almost wonder. He's the George though, Costanza like... president. I almost wonder if that would have worked if he lost uh, better, you know? Yeah. So, like, that would have been his next book, you know, The Art of the Deal <laughs> yes. of Pretending to be Running for President while, <laughs> uh, you know, inflating your business portfolio. Yeah. And he could have talked about all the amazing deals that he uh, created because he was a high-profile uh, political candidate. But now that he actually won, um, isn't you know? Aren't there constitutional issues around um, using the office to enrich yes. yourself yes. Uh, with, through foreign governments? Um, so I think maybe now it's it's more of a problem that he won. Uh, I, anyway, so, so, I so, I, we were gonna we're gonna have at the end of this podcast we're gonna talk about like humorous news stories of the week. <laughs> but I'm gonna I was gonna save this, but I should bring it up. So one, I mean, this kind of comes into that idea that. Uh, um, not so Nick's theory is that he never expect, expected to win, right? And this kind of fits in. So Trump was just granted 38 new copyrights yes. in China. Did you see yeah. this? Yeah. 38 yes. new copyrights in China. There are all sorts of like conflict of interests uh, issues involved in this. But my favorite part of this is that one of the copyrights, I don't know if you saw this, was for an escort yes. service. So a yeah. Trump branded escort yes. service. And apparently uh, they approved these. They approve these at a speed that like China never moves at. Like China's like, oh, 40, boom, we're done. Trump, Trump has been trying to get these trademarks for years, apparently, and yes. couldn't get them. And now that he's president, they're like, mm, it's good. Right. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. This yeah. makes sense. Well, should, I just love the idea that there is a Trump, essentially, a Trump brothel somewhere. Right. <laughs> With a right. trademark. Right. Uh, well, should we transition to talking about the uh, the travel ban and immigration? Yeah, sure. Right. Sounds Always. good. All right. So, so the news this week was that uh, the travel ban 2.0 uh, was released, and uh, similar to the first one in terms of the racism, but uh, more uh, better legally crafted. Uh, now we have a situation where uh, refugees are banned for 120 days, similar to the previous one. Uh, individuals from six countries instead of seven are no longer allowed to travel to the United States. Uh, if you are an Iraqi, you can still come to the United States. So they were removed from that uh, initial list. Uh, Apparently due, due to pressure from the State Department and the Defense Department. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Because of the ties to Iraqi translators and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yep. But, but otherwise, a very similar but a more tight legal argument. And uh, yeah. So uh, I don't know. Barker, where should we start? So so I um, it, it should be pointed out that I saw before we started this that Hawaii has already filed a um, court case against this, seeking some sort of injunction, citing the fact that Stephen Miller, who we talked about like two weeks ago, um, in in a press interview basically came out and said that what this is going to do is exactly the same as the first uh, <laughs> the first travel ban, which is... By the way, he's my favorite. He's oh, my yeah. Favorite. yeah. He's good. <laughs> Is it his raw charisma that draws you in? <laughs> so, I mean, all of this. So I, I think I would like to have a discussion about immigration um, in a broader sense. So we, we have this 
travel ban 2.0. But also what's been going on for the last several weeks that we haven't talked about much is an expansive crackdown on immigration in general, right? So um, there's been the, the travel ban on seven, now six primarily Muslim countries. But there's also been an expansion of ICE power, so the uh, immigration and I, I forget the difference between ICE and Border Patrol. ICE um, is immigration and customs enforcement. Customs yes. enforcement. The Canadian yeah. knows it. This is great. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I've talked <laughs> to all these people. That most Canadians <laughs> understand the American system better than most yes. Americans. <laughs> so we've got this this expanding crackdown on uh, immigration in general. So the the Trump administration has sort of turned loose the immigration enforcement people. So you've you've had a crackdown on um, really immigration enforcement in general. So under Obama, there had been actually a, a cranking up of, of immigration enforcement. But some of the things that had been put in place under Obama have been expanded more broadly. So now um, people who are caught, who are here with you know undocumented immigrants can be essentially immediately deported. The old rule was that it was only applicable to people who were captured within, I don't know, 50 miles of the border. There was some limit within the, uh, within the border. Um, now it's anybody, anybody who's captured who is here um, without documentation, here illegally, can be immediately deported. So they're, they're broadening this crackdown. They're sending everyone to Mexico, <laughs> regardless of what country they're coming from. So all Latin Americans essentially yes. are going to Mexico. Mexico <laughs> has strangely expressed uh, a level of unhappiness about this. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, there've they've been this, these, these broadening raids on um, immigration. And it's brought this sort of tension up between uh, immigration, people who are sort of, um, not necessarily anti-immigration. So, so there are people who are like Steve Bannon, who are pretty anti-immigration. But there are people who are like sort of pro-immigration enforcement. And then there's this whole other camp of sort of pro-sanctuary, right? Mm -hmm. And it's brought up this debate about how we should handle immigrants into the country. And and now there are it's been brought up uh, that now the Trump administration is wanting to um, crack that's not necessarily crack down, reduce H-1B visas. Yes. So, so there's this whole big debate about immigration and what role immigration should should have in America that I think is worth talking about. And I, I, this is where having a, a filthy immigrant might be worth having on the, on the podcast. So, no, so, I mean, I, this is good. <laughs> nice to have transition to Justin. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh. good. This is good. So I, I, I have my, you know, I have interesting perspective. Or in my mind, they're interesting. I have my own perspective on immigration. But it's good to have, uh, you know, an actual immigrant who can talk about these things. So I, there's there's all sorts of discussion to be had around this topic. Phil's now drinking a beer. Justin, you can take Just over. A comment. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I mean, so I, I entered the country first on H-1B. Uh, and it's not actually a visa for Canadians. Canadians and Mexicans, because of NAFTA, don't actually require visas to enter uh, the United States. So it's a status in us. theory, <laughs> yeah, in theory, exactly. Um, so, uh, so we came in. I was H one B, and uh, my wife and kids were were H four, uh, which doesn't allow them to uh, have work authorization. So they don't have uh, legal status really, besides being allowed to be here, accompanying me. Now they still have to pay 
you know, uh, income tax and whatever. So they get taxpayer identification numbers, uh, but not social security numbers. And <laughs> wait, that wait, makes- Wait, wait, they're not allowed to have income, but they well, are allowed tax to pay taxes? <laughs> yes. it, it, yeah, basically, yeah. So they have to, the IRS has to be tracking, you know, what they're doing and stuff. Uh, but yeah, they're not allowed to have jobs. So I get to claim them as dependents, I guess, is, is, is how it goes. Um, how nice, yeah. But they can't work and- uh, and yeah, no socials. And so, um, you know, what what that means when you're on it, but H-1B was described to me and I had no idea what this was. And just, you know, being an academic, you apply for jobs wherever there are jobs in your field available. And you, you know, I don't know what it's like in political science, but um, in, in religion and theology, uh, you know, the job market was tough in like 2008 when, when I was uh, first on it. And so I never imagined I'd be working uh, first in Texas where I had my first uh, full-time job. Um, anyway, and then the H-1B was described to me as like, a, this is a special credential status so that you have, and that was indeed true. I mean, so when we crossed the first time when we entered the country under this status, I had to bring all manner of documentation. I mean, it was incredible, including, for example, my PhD diploma, like the actual <laughs> physical diploma framed, you know, not just like transcripts or whatever. Like I had to unframe my PhD diploma to get first... on the moving truck and bring it into the customs agents at the border. That's the first uh, time I've ever heard of anyone actually using their PhD. Yes. <laughs> yes. PhD. Yeah, yeah. These Canadians, they not, cheat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but... In, in our experience, the processing of it, so H-1B, it means that you're going to have an employer sponsor. Um, and in the academic world, typically there's some negotiation about uh, if it's a limited term appointment, usually the school will pay the whole shot if they want to mm -hmm. hire you. Um, if it's a tenure track appointment, which uh, the second time that we entered under that status, uh, I had a tenure track um, job and then it was kind of like we'll we'll pay for the H-1B but uh, you'll be responsible for some of the costs getting to permanent residency relatively expedited getting to permanent residency is a whole different thing you have to get the whole TB test and the like physicals that you can only pay for with cash um, I mean so anyway just thinking about undocumented my experience Jesus. my experience has told taught me that um, there are moments in the process of legal immigration to this country that can be uh, insurmountable uh, obstacles. Um, so, and I'll give you, um, it was like only a certain uh, list of doctors that you could go to, and they kind of only do this. So they're like, and it was very kind of like a seedy, uh, I mean, it just wasn't like a real, you know, going to the doctor for like service. It was like, we're gonna process you, right? And so you go, and that um, gives us a health savings account. So I had money in a health savings account, some of which my employer had contributed to. So I had $545 cash. But like I had just read that week an article in The Atlantic about how, um, how what a large percentage of Americans don't have like money. So I'm gonna keep, I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. And like, I've been able to survive for two years with this kind of like half documentation. And so I'm gonna, trust that I exist yeah. a little bit in the system and be able to survive this way, right? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so do that. And, um, and yeah, people from others, we're not fleeing, you know, dire situation. I mean, I wanted a job here, that's it. So, <laughs> well, I mean, you're, so you're, you know, this is this is kind of a, you know, the, the, the troubles and the struggles that you have had in terms of getting 
permission to work here legally or whatever. And my dad said at one point, like, I, I never thought about the fact that this impacts Canadians. I think there is some immigration and they have like an image in their head of what, you know, who this impacts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but so let me, I'll, I'll play the, I'll, I'll be devil's advocate here. So let, let me, um, <laughs> so one of the things that has come up in terms of immigration, so the immigration has been a big talking point for the Trump administration. It's certainly, if you go back through like Steve Bannon's history, this is one of his big causes. He loves right? it. He loves immigrants. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Of course. So I, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching some news. No, I, I, I don't remember if it was a news story or if it was a podcast. I was listening to an interview with uh, Bill de Blasio in New York, you know, legally here. Um, the, the idea that, so if the New York police department, ran into someone who didn't have documentation, wasn't supposed to be here, that they weren't going to turn that uh, authority. The the barriers are very real, right? So people who have come here, like there's tremendous cost and they, they, they can't get or they don't, you know, the the, the, the opportunities aren't are, are limited in terms of legal um, work. So I, I'm sympathetic to that. Like there's a personal, there's part of me that that sees that and, and you know, I, I personally don't have a problem with immigration, like kind of immigration law. But I'm also sympathetic to the conservative argument who who hears someone like Bill de Blasio say, we come across someone who is here without documentation, who's not so he's like, I, I'm part of me that's sympathetic or understands why conservatives would be upset about that, who would say that, what you know, what are you doing? Right. Like they they're actually they haven't gone through the process. They're not. So you have gone through this long process. You've gotten the you know appropriate permissions to be here. Um, that's sort of I I. Think, I have a hard time not thinking about that um, just in terms of, I guess, uh, being humane. And um, so I don't I don't really have like a, um, you know, defend. Yeah, I just don't. That doesn't appeal to me. I'm not a nationalist in any way. And so um, so this is why you know, my sense is. This is why we should quit letting Canadians come into our country. <laughs> right, right, right. They're exactly. too thoughtful. Um, <laughs> no, but like my my uh, immigration law is federal. And so my my reading of Bill de Blasio's comments to that effect is just, that just makes sense to me. Why would you tax your enforcing their, their prerogative? Um, even in Louisville, we have, uh, you know, our mayor, which actually, this is one reason I think that uh, right now the state government in Kentucky is trying to attack uh, the way that Louisville is governed as a city. But our mayor has, um, you know, he's held kind of rallies in support of immigrants, and um, Louisville is a very diverse city compared to the rest of Kentucky, et cetera. And, and he suggested, though, he's not going to use the term sanctuary city because it gets people so mad. Nobody knows what it is, but it gets people so mad. And um, so he's not going to use that, but he just he's reiterated on numerous occasions that the Louisville Metro Police Department does not check your papers. That's not like what they do. They're like they're making sure you're not stealing from that store, like, you know, speeding and stuff like that. Right. Um, And they have like gun violence to deal with. And so they're not that um, it's basic. It's not like um, I know that there's no one interpretation, but. Uh, in most cases where there is a specific institution or city government that has declared sanctuary, what that tends to mean is simply that they're not going to turn people over to immigration and customs enforcement without uh, a 
like the federal authorities on immigration law, do their due diligence so that they don't terrorize the people that either work at their institution or uh, live in their city in an undue fashion. Um, so anyway, I don't, yeah, I don't really have, um, I think the idea of, of borders is a problematic and arbitrary one philosophically. And so I have a hard time getting super in terms of like pragmatics. I can understand that, that like pragmatically you have to do something basically to, to help uh, educate a citizenry about how to relate to people beyond its borders and how to be hospitable to them and stuff. But that's just a big human lesson that we all have to learn and go through in I terms, like, of, like no. terms of, uh, you know, where I think the, the, limit is and uh, I mean really I think those decisions are basically arbitrary so you have to come to uh, a, a place where um, people aren't going to revolt but also perhaps in a humane direction they're going to be challenged to expand their sympathies um, beyond the, the usual um, no I, I this is really interesting I um, I listened to another podcast earlier this week I think it was 99% invisible which is I'll, sure. I'll throw that plug in free advertising um, but they were talking about the sanctuary movement and how it evolved out of uh, the Christian community. Essentially, it was it was a it was a Christian response to um, essentially uh, refugees from Central America who were essentially uh, just really interesting moral moral arguments. The thing that I get frustrated with on the on the immigration debate is that there's this tendency to sort of take either extreme, right? Like immigration is bad, or like let's just ignore all sorts of <laughs> immigration laws are silly. Let's just pretend yeah, they don't exist. Right. And, and yeah. there's there's really an interesting debate to be had about how should we view immigration? Who should we allow into our country? Who shouldn't we allow in? And, and there's this this whole question about humanity and um, you know basic fundamental rights and all sorts of stuff that, that I think is a fascinating debate to have that we totally avoid just by either demonizing yeah. immigrants or like glorifying immigrants one or sure. the other yeah. and, and there's and no, no consensus on creating a, a real uh, comprehensive immigration reform nobody no. is interested in that whatsoever and, no. and even right. the terms of what that should be because right. I, I think the the so travel ban 2.0 has been argued in terms of national security to say that these six countries refugees in general are dangerous but the data doesn't support that i mean in terms of the attacks within the united states isis or otherwise are coming from within the United States. I mean, as as limited as they are, but but Bannon et al. are arguing that we have to shut out foreigners and then get the foreigners within out, right? I mean, so it's a two-pronged approach. It's like stop people from coming in and let's push those that are in or out for national security reasons, which is totally separate from all of what we've been talking, you guys have been talking about here. So uh, let me yeah. tell you about how we're going to set up the camps. Yeah. And then we'll... <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, list. List and then oh, camps. And then right. camp. Sorry, yes. I always forget that no, part. Um, I just grab people arbitrarily. So earlier in the podcast, we were talking about Trump and you know the whole issue of wiretapping. and his, Is he a fool? Is he not a fool? I, I really think Trump, there is no deeper strategy there but but for steve bannon there is a strategy and part of it is both an external thing of saying we need to create a, a perception of threat for anybody coming into the country and then also like purify the country that is here 
by throwing everybody into Mexico, right? I mean, it is. I think he has a very coherent approach to this. Yes. But nobody's talking about that. You're right in terms of an ethical and moral approach to humanity or even governance. No, but I, I think there are pragmatic things that we do need to think about. Yes. I, there's plenty of data to indicate that people coming in H1Bs because they come in from you know yeah. specific places, India and other areas of Southeast Asia. They come here get, and end up getting paid less by their employee yeah. sponsors, and you know wages don't increase because of that. Yeah. Or I, just the I don't like I. If we go all the way back to last oh, week shit, and did I just end that recording? Did you? <laughs> I just ended the recording. Can you splice them together? I don't know. I'm gonna try. Yeah, I'm recording. It's fine. It's a good. Okay. Yeah. Well, so we're recording now. We're recording okay. now. Um, All right, so a question for Justin. So if we go back to uh, Trump's non-State of the Union speech, he was he pointed to Canada, and he said Canada has an immigration system based on merit, right? That, you know, the, uh, uh, the argument being that Canada brings in useful, like, valuable immigrants, and that the United States needs to move to that system. And, and the system the U.S. has had is based on family, right? So if you have family here, we want to bring the rest of the family over. Is that your sense of the Canadian system, and is that how Canadians would understand that? You know, okay, um, I don't, because I have not immigrated to Canada, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right. you, know you should try that. that <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, my experience of immigration as a Canadian, um, I was saying to you guys before the podcast, like when, uh, my understanding, when I talk to my American students about about immigration and diversity, um, they talk about America the melting pot, and they are proud of this idea of America the melting pot, where kind of anybody can come and um, you know be here and and succeed and stuff. In Canada, when we go through elementary school, we learn that Canada is a mosaic. It is a, a multicultural mosaic, and basically, a mosaic is it's a one it's one picture, but it's made up of many diverse elements. But the the diverse elements retain their particularities. Ooh. Whereas we learn also that America is a melting pot, but we hear about it as something that is problematic because almost almost a violent image. It burns away people's particularities. In order to become part of this big American stew, you have to leave your actual identity somewhere else and, and assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. Um, so therefore in Canada, you do have, I think a more, um, people are just more familiar with the notion of there being um, relative uh, levels of assimilation, I guess. There is no one, I mean, that's something that can be both a strength and a weakness uh, for a nation culturally too, uh, there's not like just a dominant Canadian identity. Uh, so yeah, you have pockets of immigrants. I mean, I grew up in a, in a town in British Columbia where, uh, there were many, many, um, Indian immigrants who were Sikh and uh, Sikhs. And so we had Sikh temples and yes, some of the kind of the earlier to immigrate European descended, uh, Canadians, were maybe a little bit 
unfamiliar and kind of nervous about uh, an influx of, of Indo-Canadians, but that's just something that, I don't know, it becomes part of, um, you're educated to think that that is what makes your, your country strong, is actually that people retain these particularities. Um, so while Canada may have a merit-based, and also my understanding with Sikh immigrants uh, from India that, that I grew up with, it was also family-based. So a person might be able to immigrate because they are a high-skilled worker, so-called. Um, but also, there's lots of families to get, and, they, and they, they, they were many of them were large families um, that I grew up around. Um, so anyway, uh, I don't know where else I was going with that. Yeah, so now that the Canadian's done, let's talk to the Americans <laughs> about what yeah, they think yeah. about the melting pot concept. Yeah. I, I mean, like really, like how do you guys view that mentality? You know, when Justin mentioned the mosaic, it's appealing, right? Because the melting pot, melting pot, it seems like kind of a sort of French conception of identity that you all assume one identity. I'm more okay with the idea that we're here. I'd rather have a mosaic of different identities that we interact with, and you can retain your own identity. So if you're a, you know, whatever your your sense of identity might be, you know, for Nick, it's an angry white man. But <laughs> I just, I just, I just, what the fuck, dude? You asked such a good question. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. ill. Yes. But whatever that identity may be, that you can have that identity, interact with other identities, and still be you know, a collective unit. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, the melting pot has never been particularly appealing to me because it, uh, it just doesn't feel like the reality that we live in. We live in a community where there's difference, and I'm okay with that difference. It's been interesting to see the, the pushback that has happened against the expansion of uh, immigration enforcement by the Trump administration and the wall. and what, So being from Texas originally and being a... Uh, native Texan. It's been interesting to see that the extent to which Texas itself, like legislators, even conservatives within Texas have pushed back against this notion of enforcing immigration in the way that Trump is, is trying to do it. Right. Um, uh, there, there's, you know, there's to some extent there, there's this interesting dynamic in the United. So having lived in Texas and then moved to New Hampshire, New Hampshire is incredibly white, right? And there's an, there's a different interpretation really? of that's that's <laughs> shocking to me. <laughs> there's a different interpretation of like the role that 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 immigration play. Well, it's not so immigration still plays out in New Hampshire, but it's like Irish immigrants as opposed to Mexican immigrants. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. And and you know you have this like real yeah. It, I mean I don't. I, I don't even know where I'm necessarily going with that, but like two beers, two beers. An, there's an appreciation. Yeah, exactly. There's an appreciation of sort of the the value of ethnic diversity sure. um, in places that experience. Right. I mean, they're, they're, part of the pushback against the immigration enforcement has come from people who point out that, for instance, there are important economic contributions. I saw a study today that showed that if you cut off immigration into the United States, it would decrease the um, the working age population of America um, is, and, and thus the economic output of America is improved by a certain level of immigration within the United States, right? Sure. So there, there are there are very practical um, concerns here that 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 you've got the the economic arguments, you've got um, 
the arguments about you know the enforcement, the idea that if if we come across it, so you were talking about in Louisville, the argument that the the mayor or the police have made essentially is that this is not our job, right? There there is a um, disincentive in place for. Uh, people who are here without documentation to report crimes, to cooperate with the... So so there are lots of arguments for why taking a softer stance on immigration is, is important. Um, I don't know that those necessarily get talked about, though. We're talking about I, I the goddamn melting pot. What are you talking about? <laughs> Parker, I don't know. Parker, you... <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying... <laughs> I give up. Never mind. <laughs> I was fucking with you. Oh... So, should we talk about our beers? Well, can I? Can I go? Go, go, Nick. Go, Nick. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. No. I, I haven't been good at Nick tonight. You guys are just mean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I come from an immigrant family. My grandmother came from Italy when she was in her teens and married my grandfather. Spent over a year getting her citizenship. Worked literally until she physically couldn't. She had to go to chemotherapy. Worked at Wendy's, worked at a grocery store, worked at department stores. She literally did it all. I mean, she was she, all over the place. All, yeah. all over the place. Never any issue with the law whatsoever. And our families, they were, they, it was all Italian and Irish immigrants. Mm-hmm. And they contributed something to the collective American culture. I, While I think that the mosaic thing is a good concept, I don't think it takes into account the thought of we're creating a culture that has the best elements of all of the other cultures, but it's still something unique. And I think that American culture, for all of its flaws, does or has historically been emulated, especially over the past, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years, something like that. And it's it's something that I, I, I think gets dismissed a lot when we talk about immigration. Having said that, there is no part of me, because of that background, that thinks that people shouldn't be able to immigrate here, regardless of where they come from or what their background is. Mm-hmm. People who were born here, whether they were born to illegal immigrants or not, should have the right to stay here because they have nothing else and they're American citizens. Mm-hmm. And the people who have contributed to the society because their children are here, because they want a better life for themselves, should have the opportunity to do so. You shouldn't be kicking people out who are productive members of society which I don't necessarily think is happening. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I mean, I am I agree with you guys that we need to take a, a, a harder look at, at what this is doing to our country, this debate that we're having with each other where we're not thinking about the middle ground anymore. And there's it's, it's really getting away from the fact that we have a flawed system in place that we can rearrange and change and better to mm-hmm. still allow people into the country that can contribute to American society and make it better. Mm-hmm. I'm done. So, yeah, so you, you helped me figure out what I was trying to say okay. earlier when I was rambling. See, see, Nick sometimes says, like, smart things, Phil. you gotta, you got to oh, follow yeah, that trend. smart things all the time. Yeah. That's all I got. So I, I think the problem with the melting pot I, like analogy is that there's this impression that you come here and you melt into what the U.S. is, but there's a lack of recognition of the extent to which those immigrants bring culture and change the sort of soup that is being made by the melting pot. The dynamic, right? yeah. So like, sure. When I think about Texas, like Texas culture is like 
full of its very long history of Mexican and other immigrate. Like there's lots of stuff about Texas that that is this weird combination of German and Mexican culture mixed together and all these other aspects. And so if you think of, mel of the melting pot as like you come here and become American, right? Like you melt away, that's problematic. But if you think of it as like you add in all these different elements of culture and they create a whole new culture that was sort of unexpected and unanticipated, then that that's the beauty of it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was gonna say just to defend the mosaic idea, is that it is like it okay. still is yeah. <laughs> it still is this idea that it makes a picture i mean it does make a piece sure. of art you know mm -hmm. uh, that that has a kind of cohesiveness to it it's mm -hmm. just that um but anyway i also just wanted to say before about what is it that people are so afraid of because the statistics don't show that immigrants are dangerous um clearly the most dangerous people in america in terms of doing bodily harm to others are white men um, most of whom are natural born citizens. Uh, like they they commit violent crime at the highest rate of anyone. And they're, they're the mass shooters. And, and um, I mean, this Kansas guy and whatever, like, n n whereas none of the people that have come from any of those countries on that list have done the, any of that stuff. Um, so what is the fear? And um, I was thinking about it this week. Um, like, obviously, statistically, it has no basis in, in fact that you would be more afraid of people like that. So why are you afraid? And that's, that's sometimes what the mosaic idea or what the knee-jerk liberalism um, that says, like, Phil, you were saying kind of this, like, whatever, like, anybody's can come. And it's like, oh, great. And we'll just all get along and, like, hold hands and stuff. I mean, that does discount the fact that cultural difference is real. And, and there are tensions and there are... Um, you will have encounters with people that uh, are formed by other traditions than you. You'll have encounters with those people and be sometimes surprised or like kind of uncomfortable. And however, that is something that in my experience of like just thinking about I've been trying to think about why is Louisville such an enemy to the rest of Kentucky, <laughs> politically speaking. And I think it's because in it's kind of the one large i mean there's lexington but it's, it's a bit different um from from louisville it's the one like large kind of metropolis in a mostly otherwise white rural state and so you have all these people out in the country that think about difference and otherness which they've not actually encountered in their daily life and so they're very susceptible to someone telling them that it's scary and then in in, in a city no matter what city it is, it doesn't have to be Louisville. But for the most part, like, you know, your grocer is a Muslim and your um, your taxi driver is whatever. And and your neighbor is a Catholic, but you're a Baptist. And and but, you know, you need these people because you might have to borrow their lawnmower on the weekend and stuff. So when people start talking bad about diversity, you get kind of pissed. Because you're like, that's my neighbor, right? And um, and you know, even though you realize you're not Muslim, you're not like, you don't want um, necessarily to go to the mosque and worship or whatever, and, and you don't really understand Islam, maybe. But you know, like, Jim. And so, <laughs> yes, uh, like you know, whereas if you're if you're in a rural area, the only Muslims you know are on freaking homeland. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. that's what you know about Islam. And so, of course, Bannon is going to... But anyway, so but Bannon knows the facts too. He what what I think is truly dangerous about him is not just that he's able to make people afraid of of otherness, but that 
he himself really believes in a kind of philosophy of history that is leading to this cataclysmic um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, Classic I guess like a, a melting pot, but like turned up to 650 degrees or whatever. Right. Um, it's going to destroy society. And fundamentally, he's only afraid because I think, you know, in my understanding, he's a white supremacist. I mean, that's what makes him afraid of right. what's coming. Um, so anyway, that's what really terrifies me. I'm just like, the, the only philosophical justification for this mm -hmm. angle that you're taking is white supremacy. <laughs> you know, earlier today we were we were breaking down terrorism and we were doing some data and I was showing the the threat that America faces from Islamic terrorism versus other threats of political violence and violence in the United States. <clears throat> and on average, nine Americans are killed each year from Islamic terrorists. Twenty one are killed from child toddlers with guns. You know, and so it's one of these things where, and then like 11,000 are killed from other white Americans with guns, right? I mean, so it's, it's, just, it's a really interesting thing. But why take the chance? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, yeah, it's... You've already got a 1 in 20 chance of getting killed by a toddler. Why, why, yeah, right. know, why... Just keep up in that number, man. Right, why yeah. Are you doing that? So I was Googling, like, toddlers with guns, and it's amazing how many pictures are out there with toddlers with guns. Like, this toddlers is a, love guns. Yeah. There's... There's a great comfort in seeing the world in sort of black and white, simplistic mm -hmm. terms, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's, it, it's easy to go through life imagining, you know, viewing the world through these, um, uh, again, through the simple lens. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right, Justin, in that like when you when you actually experience, this is you know classic classic cognitive dissonance. When you actually experience people yeah. who are different than you, you realize that they're, you know. They're human beings. This is, yeah, this is, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is how Phil and I get along. <laughs> All right, we should talk beers, right? Yes, we should. Yeah. Do you guys want to go ahead? Sure, I'll, I can start if you want. Yeah. Um, so my first beer tonight, so I, I should say, <laughs> I'm heavy on medication tonight, and I've been <laughs> drinking heavily. So Phil, Phil why are you on medication? Oh, Phil. I, I, <laughs> I have shingles, which is something that, that only 70-year-old men should get, but somehow I have it. So, um, yeah, so who, if, if I said crazy stuff... Don't, don't blame the podcast, shingles. Don't blame the shingles, Barker. The shingles fault. I'm going to pry on Jesus. So anyway, I had, uh, I, the first beer I had was a Weihenstefaner. Corbinian, which is a German beer, obviously, uh, Doppelbach. It was it was really good. Um, that was one of the ones that I went into uh, the the um, local beer shop here that I go to, and uh, it was on sale. The guy highly recommended. It. it was really good. It was a dark beer, but it wasn't like a particularly heavy beer. It was uh, um, it was it was very good. Um, highly recommended. And then my second beer, which is uh, I blame for all of my problems. Was an able able Ebenezer Brewing Company victory nor defeat double IPA, and it came in a quart can. Yay! <laughs> so I have not finished it yet, but I'm pretty close. Um, and it's like nine percent by volume. So that, I, I think that's if I said something crazy, that's the fault. And I was reading on the can that the reason that they do it by the court is that George Washington 
apparently decreed at some point during the American Revolution that every soldier should have a quart of beer per day. <laughs> so that's great. That's the great. justification. But yeah, Abel Ebenezer Brewing Company, which is um, a New Hampshire brewing company, and it was a great IPA. Really liked it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, well, um, being from Kentucky, I'm not actually drinking. Well, I mean, there's good beer in Kentucky, too, but I, I didn't have any on hand, and I do, of course, have bourbon on hand. So um, <laughs> I went to my uh, my local Costco and got this uh, half gallon, I believe it is, of, uh, <laughs> of Maker's Mark. Yeah. I think we can give um, you a pass on that. Yeah, yeah which is, uh, which is a... a I don't know. It's the first bourbon that I ever tried when I still lived in Canada. And um, it's kind of the one that I come back to. It's just, it works. It's not as sweet as Woodford Reserve, um, but it's maybe a little smoother than uh, Knob Creek, which is another kind of standard. And It's good stuff. Um, I like Knob Creek. Yeah, but I, I highly recommend a visit. I will say that these all these labels um, on Maker's Mark bottles are... Um, made with this hand press cutting machine, and uh, yeah, okay, go I'm ahead. getting yeah. a picture of, of yeah. Okay. There we go. <laughs> and um, and the, all the bottles are also dipped by hand in the wax. Um, and when I visited there, you get to you get to dip your own, and it's kind of fun. Maker's Mark is good stuff. Yeah, that is good it stuff. Is. It's hard to go wrong with Maker's Mark. Yeah. What you got, Bill? All right, I have. So I think I'm I'm in week two of a three week Milwaukee run in terms of beer. So originally from Milwaukee, I'm grabbing some Milwaukee beers, and so I started with a uh, a Citrus Happy, which is a MKE or Milwaukee Brewing Company. Uh, it was a sort of what? I, what? MKE? Yeah, is Milwaukee Brewing Company. Yeah. <laughs> That doesn't line up. Bro. All right, all right. Let me explain, Barker. So the uh, so Milwaukee is the is called MKE. When you fly into Milwaukee, you've oh, flown okay. into Milwaukee. The airport is called MKE. It's the airport, code. airport. Gotcha. Code. Gotcha. Yeah, get with sense. it, Barker. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so it is, and it's a brewery that when I lived in in Milwaukee, I would I'd wander down to. It's wonderful. Uh, this is a citrus happy, uh, very good, like a citrus IPA. Wonderful beer. Love the brewery. It's really good. Uh, my second beer was a. Penguin Pale Ale, Ooh. yes, uh, from Barrel One Barrel in Madison, Wisconsin. One of my Madison is a wonderful town as well, uh, and I would say actually the Penguin Pale Ale might have been better than the Citrus Happy. It was really good. Uh, it was a full pale ale, like wonderful. My third beer I stole from Nick, and I think he's going to comment on that, so I won't. I won't say anything specific about that. No, you. I, it's it's what I like. I plan on drinking nothing. Yeah. I'm on my second beer right now. Um, so yeah, I had extra. Um, what was it? Noon whistle. Noon whistle. Their their Cosmo Pale Ale. Listen to the last podcast if you want to review it. I will say I, I never had a noon whistle. This it's is a, really good. It is a wonderful beer. Yeah, it's really they, good. they should sponsor oh. us because I could drink like six of these during the podcast. <laughs> I might uh, even do that. Yeah, and they're close too. Yeah, they are very close. Yeah, uh, and then I, I had a, a fresh squeeze uh, from Deschutes, which is which is always good. Yeah, so nice and light, a little grapefruity. Yeah. maybe there's some vitamin C in there. That's what you need. You need it. Nick. I just need to dehydrate yeah. myself and get all this out of my nose. Between you and Phil, like you're sick and Phil has the shingles. I mean, we're we're it's amazing we've gone for whatever, an hour and a half. Mine's not like legitimately disgusting. Yeah. Like that. no, That's yeah. just horrible. Phil's, Phil has his shirt off at this point. It's not it's not pleasant. <laughs> um do we want to do the news stories thing or do you want to cut it? 
should we? Uh, let's let's go quick. We'll okay. do quick. Do All quick. right. Yeah. So every, we were doing like one quick news story about something interesting in the world that we think is fascinating. So, Phil, do you want to start? Sure. So I, I was planning on doing the Trump uh, the Trump escort service in China, but I'll I'll go with my backup story, which is that I, I thoroughly enjoyed a video that came out this week of Nigel Farage, who is the UKIP, the the British sort of extreme right, you know, far right kind of Brexit guy. Um, I don't know if you saw this video of of him on a British talk show in which a little girl comes out and knights him, like she's wearing like dressed like the Queen. She she taps this you know each of his shoulders with this like plastic sword and it's meant to be all cute and whatever and then there's this sort of long pause and the girl sort of <laughs> totally unprovoked says in this incredibly sweet little voice my mommy says you hate foreigners <laughs> <laughs> and the, the attempt of Nigel Farage and the 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 TV show host to try to like. Yeah, it's you, we don't say that. That's impolite. Yes, anyway, yes. that was that was my that beyond the uh, beyond the Trump escort service. That was that was That's my favorite yes. little uh, side story of the week was seeing yeah. a, a child um, totally uh, insult Nigel Farage. <laughs> Justin, um, you know, I've been actually because it's spring break. Yeah, um, I've been trying to, to really? keep myself off of the news. That's and good. So I don't have God you know you. I read my the daily briefing in the New York Times, and <laughs> yes. so I know a couple of main big picture stuff. But um, I don't really have any side uh, stories this week, except that I just before that you guys uh, hooked up this call, I did see that Donald Trump is supposedly visiting Louisville on Saturday. Oh. But the White House will not disclose what this is about or where he's going. Um, so anyway, that was before we recorded. So maybe it's you'll be there. Right? You'll be there. Well, there are like already protests being planned. So I don't know what's going to happen. Do you, but, do you think he'll yeah. deport you while he's there? Or? That's a good question. You know, it's funny because um, I have a colleague that's uh, that's Korean and he um, also has a green card, but his is a two year green card. He hasn't got the 10 year one yet. And. He's um, he was told, actually, that he shouldn't he wanted to go and do some protesting when the first uh, executive order came down. But he was told that that uh, immigrants should not go protest at airports because there are actually customs officials there. And and so, Who you know, you never know what's going to happen. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Who actually told him that? Uh, his I don't know if it was his personal attorney or if it was the attorney. um huh. You know, anyway, and he and he's different, too, because he is a visible minority. And so he's always talking about he always wants to like, you know, he and I are the immigrants um, at my institution right now. And so we kind of commiserate and stuff. But but as it gets more white supremacist, um, he's kind of like, when are you going to turn on me? You know, right? so, <laughs> you, you look less immigrant. Yeah, yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so my story is about former president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. I miss him so yes. much. Yes, yeah, he's he was fantastic for the news. But so the former president who during his presidency banned Twitter. He was part of the movement uh, they were the Iranians were using Twitter to push back against the repressive government. Uh, he and the supreme leader banned Twitter. He is now on Twitter, which is oh. the irony of this is just so thick. All right. And he's on Twitter in English. So he came on, did a video, talked about his, his move to Twitter. 
And I, what I love most about this story is that he's asking questions on Twitter. So he asked, like, what is your opinion of the American president's comment regarding some media <laughs> outlets, right? So he's asking that. And then he followed that up with a question. In your opinion, is it possible to accuse Mahmoud Ahmadinejad of censorship or lack of freedom? And my the response was great because... Uh, John Goodman T-shirt. That's his. That's his Twitter name. Responded by saying, by saying, Mahmoud, my man. The answer is yes. <laughs> He's apparently on Facebook as well. It's not just Twitter. He's like all out on social media now. I think he's really he's really pushing to he's, rehabilitate his image. Exactly. Is it actually, him. It, it's, the picture is him. It says uh, <laughs> Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Husband, dad, grandfather, professor, president, mayor, and proud Iranian. Now, the other interesting line in this argument is that Phil Barker and I have met Ahmadinejad in person. (laughs) Yes. Um, And it was an insane event. We got invited to this event in New York where he was bringing, like, Americans who hate the United States like really badly, and we got invited to this not that not that channel. Like me complaining, guys. I'm not part of that group yes. at all. I, I, we, I love America. We are 100 percent yes. under CIA investigation. Basically, I was initially contacted about bringing some students. They canceled that event. They went with the angry event, and I complained. I'm like, you invited me. I have to come. And then I said, and hey, my friend Phil Barker would also like to be there. And so they brought us in. And then Phil and I, there was like Secret Service throughout the room. It was, um, it was a it was an interesting evening. It was a room full of crazy people. Yeah, praising, praising Iran. It was yes. it was surreal. It was it was something else. Yeah, God, lovely. All right, Nicholas, you gonna end it? Uh, yeah. I I went. I tried to be a little bit less serious with you're, mine. You're funny. We should be more. Well, we for for a National Women's Day. Yeah, uh, or a National Day without women. Right. Or is it National Women's Day? Both. They, it they, is. Yeah, both. Yep. Is that yeah. oxymoron? Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Um, Alabama radio station. Wow, Alabama radio station takes women off air, only playing songs by men in "Day Without a Woman." Oh, jeez. <laughs> I, I, I think they might have misunderstood the, yes. whole, the whole idea of "Day Without a Woman." Yes. Quote: yeah. "This was an easy decision for us. <laughs> women are our core listeners, and these women contribute a great deal to our sound. Honoring women by highlighting to the community how important they are is a no-brainer." Mm-hmm. Oh, oh! I don't, I don't know how to feel about that. Um, and apparently this just came up. Which, uh, if you guys haven't used this site before or haven't seen it before, go to fark.com. It lists every horrible, funny news story that you could possibly think of and separates it out into entertainment and politics and technology and things like that with really funny headlines. Um, yeah, free plug on there. Uh, there was apparently some sort of political theater where they did the Trump-Clinton debates, but they swapped gender roles. So they had a female Trump and a male Clinton, and people still liked the female Trump more than the male Clinton. Interesting. Yeah. I'll have to think more about that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just going to let that one simmer a little bit. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week. And then, random historical fact, uh, apparently... uh, George H.W. Bush, and I, this was, I guess, information that was floating around. I saw an article about it that uh, he was talking about, uh, or someone who was talking about when he got rescued, his um, 
members of his squad or whatever other members of his air team yeah. squadron yeah, seems uh, were beheaded with swords and then eaten by Japanese uh, uh, officers. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> he was, the I think, the only one to escape out of his squadron or something. And that's a legit story. It's a legitimate wow. story. Yeah, they were decapitated what? with swords and... Yeah, like pieces yeah. of their thigh were put in a like sushi. Oh, let's debate the ethics of cannibalism. <laughs> yes, let's. <laughs> I've been trying to pull Barker into that debate for years. <laughs> um, yeah, guys, uh, anything else? Well, we should thank Justin for joining us. It yeah, was fantastic. Justin. Yeah, super fantastic. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. great. I really enjoyed it. Yes, thank you for uh, for coming on. We appreciate it. Um, yeah, I guess we'll uh, we'll leave it there until next week. Um, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Cheers. 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 Cheers.